Let's turn in the scriptures to Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. We've been studying this letter now for several weeks. Paul wrote it to churches in the region of Galatia. Galatia is a region in modern Turkey, almost halfway between Jerusalem and Rome. About 15 years after Paul's conversion, Paul, along with a teammate, Barnabas, from their home church in Syria, the two of them went on a church planting trip that lasted about two years, and they planted a few congregations in this region, particularly in the Galatian cities of Antioch. Um, it's Antioch, it's considered Pisidian Antioch rather than Syrian Antioch. There were several towns with the name Antioch. There's the city of Iconium, Lystra, Derby. These were in the southern region of Galatia, and he's writing back to these churches. He probably wrote this letter about a year or so after that church planting trip had concluded. He wrote it around A.D. 48, and that makes Galatians very likely the first letter that Paul wrote, at least the first uh, letter that he wrote in the New Testament. Many of the initial converts in this region of Galatia were from a Jewish background, and they faced heavy persecution from their Jewish communities after they converted to Christ, believing that Jesus was the Messiah. It's still the same with many believers today, whether you're a Jew and you convert to Christianity, or whether you're a Muslim and you convert to Christianity, or whether you are a liberal Protestant or a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox. When you leave your community of your upbringing, you often very soon afterward face persecution. It's no wonder then that in this context, very soon after these churches were planted, a hybrid version of Christianity began gaining some traction. Some began teaching that you don't need to completely leave Judaism behind. In fact, you need to mix Judaism in with Christianity. You don't need to, to um, abandon the Mosaic Law. You don't need to abandon all of our traditions, our holidays, and particularly circumcision. Instead, you need to keep the law. You need to become a Christian and follow the law. To be accepted by God, you need both Jesus and Moses. Now, if you think, you mean we have a whole letter in the New Testament written to deal with whether it's just Jesus alone or Jesus and Moses? Like, why do we have a, a whole letter written to believers for all time dealing with a theological issue? You have to remember that the issue that Galatians deals with is the most important question of human existence. And that is, how can I, a sinner, stand just before my holy God, my maker and my judge? How in the world can I stand just, righteous before him? That's the issue. Nothing less than that is at stake in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And Paul writes this entire letter to clarify the correct answer to that question. Any old religion will not do. 
All religions are not equal. All views of theology and spirituality are not equal. In the first two chapters of this letter, Paul writes autobiographically to explain the gospel that he preaches. That is, how someone can be just before God. How they can be declared righteous in God's sight through faith in Jesus the Messiah. And he emphasizes in the first two chapters that his message is not something that he or any other mere human invented. It's not something that the apostles invented, that they concocted in Jerusalem. He explains that his message is from God, and it even has the authority to correct every human, including the lead apostle Peter himself. That's the story of the first two chapters. He writes autobiographically to say, my gospel is from God, not from humans, and it has authority over every human. Then, in the next two chapters, which is where we're in the middle of right now, chapters 3 and 4, Paul writes theologically, not autobiographically, but theologically. He looks at how the biblical covenants unfold through history. And Paul explains from the entire history of the Bible that you cannot mix faith and works. You cannot mix faith in Jesus and obedience to the law and say that these two put together equal salvation. He says it can't work that way when you understand the Bible's storyline. So last week, we actually looked at the unfolding of the major covenants through history. We saw how Adam treacherously transgressed the covenant in the garden and thereby earned the consequences of death, and yet God responded by promising one day to curse the serpent and thereby end the curse that had been brought on creation through the woman's offspring. Eve would have a descendant who would crush everything that Satan had brought into the world. We saw, secondly, how a few millennia later, God made a covenant with a man named Abram and changed his name to Abraham, saying, in your offspring, I'm going to bring blessing to all nations on earth. So, by Genesis chapter 12, we understand with greater specificity that it's just not any child who's going to be born into the world. It's actually going to be someone from Abraham's descendants. And before the end of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, before that book ends, we understand that the promised serpent-crushing hope for blessing for the world is not just going to come through Abraham's descendants, but it's going to come through a descendant of Abraham's son Isaac and of Abraham's grandson Jacob and even of Abraham's great-grandson Judah. We understand by the end of the first book of the Bible some, with some specificity, who this great restorer of blessing to all of creation is going to be. He's going to come from the tribe of Judah. We saw last week, thirdly, how God made a covenant with Israel at Sinai. It came through Moses. On Sinai, God gave the law, most famously. He gave the Ten Commandments. Israel would experience blessing if they were faithful to the law, if they remained faithful to the terms of this 
covenantal relationship. And they would experience the curses of the law, the punishments of the law, if they were unfaithful, if they disobeyed the terms of the covenant. And then we saw how 500 years later, around 1000 BC, God made a covenant with David. He was from the tribe of Judah. From the tribe of Judah, not just Judah, but centuries later, one of Judah's sons, David, from his descendants would come this long-awaited blessing restorer to all of creation. And David was promised that one of his descendants, this coming Messiah, would reign forever as king over all kings. And we saw how even in exile, after Israel had experienced the curses of the covenant, of the Mosaic covenant, of the covenant given to them on Sinai, as they had experienced the curses of that covenant and had been sent into captivity, we saw how God was still promising that his coming servant would suffer for the sins of his people we saw that those people would actually include many outside Israel. At the end of the Old Testament, we know that this coming suffering servant is going to justify his people forever, and he would change his people's hearts by his spirit. That's the Old Testament in a nutshell. It's God continuing to say, I want to relate with you. I am going to relate with you. And this is how. Now, the issue of today's text is in front of us. One of these doesn't seem to fit. One of these doesn't seem to fit. It's sort of like those questions in uh, logic that you would take on your Stanford achievement tests. Which one doesn't fit? <laughs> Can you identify it? The one that doesn't fit is this one right in the middle. Every one of the covenants involves an explicit promise to restore blessing to the world through a coming human, except for one of them. It's the law. What was God doing on Mount Sinai? That's the subject of today's message. It's the subject of today's passage. And under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, for every one of our good, for our spiritual health, God wanted us to think through how the law fits into the promise. How is God's covenant, particularly with Abraham, to bless all nations on earth through his offspring? How is that related to God's covenant with Israel, entered into at Sinai, that there would be blessing for obedience and curses for disobedience. How do those two fit? Again, if you're tempted to think, this is impractical, this is academic, is this really relevant? Then you must recall that the reason we're examining this today is because what's at stake is nothing less than how a sinner can stand just in the presence of a holy God. How we can be forgiven and granted eternal life in the presence of our creator, our maker, and our judge. How we can be reconciled to him and have eternal hope. That's all that's at stake.
Let's read together Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. It's here that Paul begins to show the relationship between God's covenant with Abraham and the law that was given at Sinai. He begins with an illustration. He says, let me give you a human example, brothers. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, if you want a this-week example of it, just look at what's going on in the life of Frank Reich. He's been in the news lately because a few years ago he signed a contract to be the coach of the Indianapolis Colts and they fired him in the middle of his contract and the Carolina Panthers picked him up as their coach and after I think 10 or 11 games they fired him and now Frank Reich is going to make $25,000 a day from each team through 2026 until both contracts have been fulfilled. That's because contracts mean something. They can't be annulled after they go into effect. Read verse 15 again. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, No one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. You've got the illustration in your mind? Now Paul's going to teach. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. Here Paul knows the promises to Abraham's offspring were singular. He knows how the story ends. He says he wasn't writing to many offsprings. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one and to your offspring. That's the Messiah, Paul says. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came, according to Exodus 12, 430 years after the patriarchs, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? Why did God give the law to Israel through Moses atop Sinai? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. That's Jesus. And the law was put in place through angels and by an intermediary. That's Moses, the mediator. Now, an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. Paul's basic point here is that the Mosaic law is inferior to the promise to Abraham simply based on the presence or the lack of mediators. We're going to come back to this. Verse 21. Is then the law, the covenant God made with Israel atop Mount Sinai, is that contrary to the promises of God? The promises that Blessing is going to be restored to the world through an offspring of Abraham. Certainly not. Paul's point is that these covenants are not contradictory, but complementary. He says, For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness indeed would be by the law. 
This is not a way of giving people life. No, verse 22, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, he's talking about the whole era of the Lord Jesus. After the Lord Jesus came and we understood so clearly that we have a relationship with God through faith in the Messiah. Once he came, before that time, we were held captive under the Mosaic Law. We were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're the Messiahs, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul wraps up here, making the point that since the death and resurrection of Jesus, everyone who believes in Jesus is personally, individually, spiritually, permanently united to Jesus and is going to inherit every blessing promised by God in the Abrahamic covenant. And that is regardless of ethnicity. It's regardless of social status. It's regardless of gender. That is, you can inherit the promises that God made to Abraham through faith in Jesus, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're low class, middle class, or upper class, whether you are Jewish or Arab or European or African or Asian or Australian, or you're from one of the Americas. There are many, many people, look down again at verse 28, who today are trying to use this verse to overthrow what the Bible teaches about gender in other places. Let's be clear, Paul is not saying that becoming a Christian erases your ethnicity. He's not saying once you become a Christian, you're no longer a Jew or a non-Jew. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying it erases your social class or your gender. For example, if you're a middle-class Italian woman before coming to Jesus, you're a middle-class Italian woman after coming to Jesus. You don't become an androgynous, cultureless, jobless individual after you trust Jesus. That's not at all what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that the blessings of the gospel aren't only for highly respected Jewish men who are circumcised. It's for men and women of every class, of every culture. The promises made to Abraham are for the world. Anyone who will believe in Jesus. That's the point he's making. 
What's the main point? Well, in this portion of the letter, Paul is showing the relationship between the covenant promises God made to Abraham and the law he gave to Israel at Sinai. He clearly teaches that the two are not contradictory, but complementary. And here's how they're complementary. Paul explains in this passage that the fundamental purpose of the law, the law's fundamental purpose is to compel people to trust Jesus for salvation from their sins. As one scholar put it, the law drives people to the promise. They're not contradictory, they're complementary. The fundamental purpose of the law is to compel sinners who the law highlights. You're a sinner. It's to compel people to trust Jesus for salvation. That's Paul's main point here. The heart of the passage shows the relationship between God's covenant with Abraham and the law with Moses atop Sinai. And Paul compares them in a few ways. Now here I'm going to encourage you. We're not going to take long here. But you need to engage your minds. Again, God breathed out these details. The details of this truth for our spiritual eternal health. Hang with me. As we're thinking how these two covenants, the Abrahamic covenant and the covenant with, Moses, with Israel through Moses atop Mount Sinai, the Sinaitic covenant. How does the Abrahamic covenant and the Sinaitic covenant relate? Hang on. Buckle your seatbelts. Engage your minds. There are five ways in which they relate. The first is this. Consider their durations. One is permanent and the other is temporary. It's going to be a little hard to read. I apologize. In verses 15 and 16, Paul explains that the covenant with Abraham is unbreakable. It was a ratified covenant that cannot be voided, annulled, by any future decision. By contrast, Paul teaches that the Mosaic law was temporary. The promises to Abraham, permanent. The law via Moses, wasn't. He teaches three times that the law was in effect only until Christ came. Verse 19, the law was in effect until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Verses 23 and 24, he says twice, the law was effective till Christ came, until Jesus. So in verse 25, he concludes, we're no longer under the law, under the guardianship of the law. The law was temporary. The one was permanent, the other temporary. Secondly, consider their timing. In verse 17, Paul explains that God's promise with Abraham came first. 430 years before the Mosaic Law. And based on what he's already written, it's clear that the Mosaic Law was not given to be primary, but somehow to be a temporary complement to the promise that had been made over four centuries before. There's an argument based on timing. One comes first, the other comes later. It must therefore somehow fit or complement the one that came first. The third argument 
The third argument is consider the parties involved. Paul explains the relationship in verses 19 and 20, the relationship of these covenants, by pointing out that the law atop Sinai, given on Sinai, was mediated through angels. I don't know if it's in the margin of your Bible, if there's a note there by angels, but you might write Deuteronomy 33.2 that says that there were 10,000 angels atop Sinai. God appeared on Sinai with 10,000 angels as he gave his law to the people through an intermediary, that is, through Moses. So you had angels and Moses. The contrast between the two is like this. God just spoke directly to Abraham. But... When he spoke to Israel, he went through intermediaries. He had witnesses. There were mediators. Why is that significant? Well, by contrasting whether there were mediators or not, Paul is stressing that the covenant with Abraham was unconditional. In effect, there didn't need to be any witnesses. It was unconditional. However, The covenant made with Israel at Sinai had witnesses because its terms were conditional. God was going to evaluate whether the people were faithful to the agreements, whether both parties were faithful was at stake. That's why there were intermediaries. One was unconditional, the other conditional. It's interestingly, I'm just going to point out at the end of verse 20, Paul emphasizes God is one. And he's reminding these people, these converts, many of whom had come out of Judaism, that God is one. It's a way, we might extend it a little bit, saying he's saying God is consistent. In in working out these covenants, he's working out his one plan for history. His one plan for saving the world through faith in Jesus. There aren't two ways of salvation because there aren't two gods. It's not that you can, you know, if you're a Jew, you get saved by obedience to the law. If you're a Christian, you get saved through faith in Jesus. He says, no, God is one. God is one. Fourth, consider the nature of each. One is a promise, the other is a law. Throughout this whole passage, you can see it most clearly in verse 21, where Paul asks, Is the law of God given at Sinai contrary to the promises God made to Abraham? Throughout this whole passage, there is a contrast between one of these is a law and the other is a promise. In fact, I would say that the word promise is one of the prominent words in this this passage today, in these verses. It appears eight times. The Abrahamic covenant can be summarized as a promise. The Sinaitic covenant can be summarized as a law. What happened with Abraham? God promised through one of his offspring to overthrow the curse and restore blessing to the world. He would restore blessing to all nations on earth through Abraham's offspring. It's a promise. What do you do with promises? What did Abraham have to do? He had to believe it. That's it. 
because of the very nature of the kind of covenant it was, it didn't have to be obeyed. It had to be believed. That's the argument. By their very nature, promises must be trusted or distrusted. The law, however, involves rules. It's a code of conduct. It must be obeyed. Laws have a different nature than promises. And if you look at verse 19, Paul says that the law was added because of transgression. And verse 23 says, we were held captive under the law until Jesus came. Hang with me. In other words, at Sinai, a law was given. It was not given like the promise was given. It was not given, the promise was given to fix the sin problem, not the law. According to verse 19, the law was actually given to highlight the sin problem. Isn't that what the whole Old Testament is about? The thousand years from Mount Sinai to captivity in Babylon, what does it scream to the reader? It screams that Israel is by and large unfaithful to the law. They can't keep it. The people need someone who can fix them. We started our service today. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. That's the story of the Bible. Paul knows it. To Abraham was given a promise that had to be believed. And the law came in in order to highlight the need for the promise. Last comparison. Consider their power. In the second half of verse 21, Paul stresses, the law had no power to give life. Rules have no power to change us. The rules that I give to my children cannot change their hearts. It's been said profoundly, a cage can keep a lion from eating the lamb, but it can't prevent the lion from wanting to eat the lamb. That is an absolutely critical reminder to all of us who are parents, to all of us who are involved in teaching. Rules, cages can't change the heart. But verse 22 concludes that Jesus the Messiah can. He does have the power to give life. He died for lawbreakers and then broke the chains of death. The one on whom the Abrahamic promise centered, the offspring, the Messiah, he has the power of life within himself. He has the power to change us and make us what God created us to be. Those who love God and those who love others. Hmm. That's the teaching for today. There's a lot there. The teaching could seem complicated. I'd say this is about as practical as a car mechanic. You might not care to know what your mechanic knows. 
You might not care what's going on under the hood of your car. You might say, I'm just a person that when I sit in the seat and turn the key, I want the engine to come on. And when I press the gas pedal, I want it to move. You say, that's all I care about. But when your car won't start, or when your car won't go, how the power works, and how, how the power is activated, whether the engine is firing, and whether all of the cables and cords and, 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 and I don't even know what they're called. I'm not a mechanic. <laughs> Whether they're all going to the engine like they should, all of a sudden matters. In Galatians 3, Paul takes us under the hood of the car of salvation. It is theology at its finest. Or we might say, the mechanics of the gospel at their finest. Paul's theology is rich. It might seem to you, I've got two big slides up here today describing the covenants and describing a comparison between two of the covenants. It might seem as complicated to you as a car manual. But Paul's goal is very simple. He wants you to be able to stick the key in the ignition, turn it, press the gas, and get power. What is his goal? What is his goal? Why does he work through all of the theology? His goal is in verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The Mosaic Law, the relationship God entered into with Israel atop Mount Sinai with all of its rules, it was like a legal guardian who kept you in custody until you reached adulthood. In the days of your immaturity, until you reached the majority age, the law kept saying, Jesus is coming, a Savior's coming, Abraham's descendant is coming, David's descendant is coming, God's servant is coming. He's the one you need. He's the one who can forgive your sin. He's the one who can change your heart. If you're going to stand just before God, it's going to be through Him, through Him, through Him. That's what the law kept doing year after year until Jesus came. See, the point of this lesson is very, very simple. You cannot ever be justified before God. You cannot ever stand just before God through your own obedience. It has never worked that way. Ever. That's not why the law was given. The law was not given so that you could have one way to earn life. The law was given to be your guardian to continually say to you over and over, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. There is one lawkeeper, and he is going to die for all of your lawbreaking. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. The fundamental purpose of the law is to compel us to trust Jesus for salvation, 
That is the whole point. Hmm. If you have ever thought to this point in your life that your obedience, that your good works are your hope of being accepted by God, if you still think that, you're thinking the way most people do. You're hoping that you're not as bad as other people. You're hoping that you're getting better. You're improving. I, I think God's fair. I, I don't think my bad's not, it's not that bad. If that's the way you're hoping to be accepted by God, if that's how you've thought, if that's how you're still thinking, I urge you to repent. Please notice, I'm not saying repent of all of your sins. You do need to turn from your waywardness, from all of your lawbreaking. But today I'm calling you to repent of all of your good works. Repent. Your good works aren't good enough. You can't earn your way into a relationship with God. I'm calling you to repent of thinking that your obedience is going to get you in. It has nothing to do with your obedience. It has everything to do with whether you trust Christ. When you read the Ten Commandments, you should say, I need Jesus. The law was given to us to compel us to trust Jesus. That's what Paul's driving at. If you have trusted Jesus, then I just urge you, Christian, don't ever go back to your old way of thinking. We are so, so prone to slip back into the old way of thinking. To think that God's love for me, his eternal love for me, is based, it's conditioned on my performance. No. Christian, keep letting his eternal love for you. That was promised millennia before Jesus came. That was billboarded on the cross. Let God's eternal love for you shown to you in Jesus, your substitute. Let that drive your devotion. Your devotion shouldn't be fueled by, I hope I perform well enough today so that I can put my head on my pillow tonight and know that God accepts me. God, help us never to go back to that way of thinking. We put our heads on our pillow and we say, God, I can rest tonight because I've got Jesus. Because Jesus represents me in your presence. Jesus is the one who can forgive me. Jesus is the one who justifies me. Jesus is the one who brings me into your presence now and forever. I want to keep living for Jesus. May the eternal love of God for us was given to us the sacrifice, the resurrection of Jesus, 
May it be the thing that we keep trusting and may it be the thing that keeps fueling our devotion to the Lord until the day we see him. We're now going to confess together. You alone can rescue. You alone can save. I can't do it. My works can't do it. My obedience can't do it. Jesus, you alone can rescue. Would you stand with me?